0: This is Notoriously Episcopalian. My name is Kelly Hudlow. This is a podcast of sermons and musings all about the Christian faith and especially about being an Episcopalian. This is a sermon for the 15th Sunday after Pentecost, September 5th, 2021, offered at St. Barnabas Episcopal Church in Roanoke, Alabama. The principal text for the sermon is James chapter 2, verses 1-17. through 17. May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, a Sunday in the midst of a three-day weekend for most of the world means you get extra jewels in your crown for making it to church on Sunday morning. So congratulations. I'm glad you are here this Labor Day weekend. And because it's Labor Day, I think it makes sense to sort of stop and think why we have this holiday that is tomorrow, why the country sort of shuts down. Labor Day began to be observed during a rather dismal period in the United States. The Industrial Revolution of the 19th century caused the population to shift from more rural areas into big cities and from working in agriculture to working in industry. In this new economy, it meant most people worked 12 hours a day, 7 days a week and the working conditions for all workers, especially immigrants, the poor, and children, were generally unsafe. They lacked fresh air, they lacked adequate sanitation, and they didn't get rest breaks. In response to this, labor unions formed to advocate for better pay and working conditions and to end child labor, something that the Episcopal Church worked hard for, particularly the Women's Auxiliary League and to improve the working conditions of those that were involved, there would be at times demonstrations and strikes. And in some cases, these were met with a violent response from police and occasionally the military. It was from this labor movement, this this effort to improve working conditions that Labor Day was first celebrated on September 5th, 1882 in New York City when 10,000 workers took unpaid leave to march from City Hall to Union Square. It's considered the first Labor Day parade in the country. And it was such a hit, because after the parade laborers didn't have to go back to work, they actually had a day off, that other cities and states started observing a Labor Day holiday in the fall. But it wasn't until 1894, when the Pullman workers, the the, the rail car workers, went on strike in Chicago, And that strike grew and it disrupted rail traffic across the country and troops were sent in and violence erupted that President Grover Cleveland finally signed into law an act passed by Congress that established Labor Day as a federal holiday. So once it was established as a federal holiday, it became a practice in many churches that on the Sunday before Labor Day, that they would set it aside as a particular day to remember and lift up the voices of working people and their experience, and occasionally pastors would even turn their pulpits over to union organizers, sometimes with mixed effects because the union organizers were not always the most forgiving of the passivity of the church. After more than a century of labor organizing and advocacy, Congress passed the Fair Labor and Standards Act in 1938, which established a minimum wage, which set the work week at 44 hours then, it was later lowered to 40 hours, and banned child labor. Labor Day and the Fair Labor Act were an attempt by our country, our government, to honor the working people, the working class, the poor, and to flip the system that favored the wealthy employers in order to protect the powerless employees, to ensure that they would have time for rest and that they would have safe working conditions. In our reading from the second chapter of James that we get this morning, James is pointing us to look at just such systems that Labor Day caused us to look at in the late 1800s, right? James is describing a system of power that's at work in the church. He gives us this hypothetical that a rich person walks in the door and the usher falls over themselves to sit him right up front in the place of honor. And at the same time, a poor man shows up and while the poor man's not turned away at the church door, he sort of snuck towards the back off to the side where he doesn't draw a lot of attention. James points to the church and says, Why are you choosing the wealthy person over the poor? Don't you know that when you do that, you are choosing the world over God? It's the world that favors the rich. Scripture is pretty plain about who God favors, right? James tells us God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom. We hear that in the Beatitudes in both Matthew and Luke, that the poor will inherit the kingdom of God. But James just doesn't stop with this reference to the Beatitudes. He asks the audience to consider how this system of power at work in the world and in the church Is affecting them. James gives a hypothetical of two extremes, right? A wealthy person and a rich person. But most of the folks that were at that church were neither one. They were neither rich nor were they poor. They were somewhere in between. And James says to those people in the middle, Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? James is telling the people in the middle that the world's system is hurting them too. That while they may aspire to be the rich man that they place up front, they typically suffer the same fate as the poor man that they put in the back. And so, we're left with james's question how to answer it my brothers and sisters do with your acts of do with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious lord and jesus christ do we believe in the savior that came for the world or do we choose the wor- the system of the world or do we choose jesus is our religion pu- pure as james started out with in the reading last week or are we just hearers of the word and not doers do we just give lip service to our faith by offering thoughts and prayer instead of food and bread and blankets and clothing? James in this chapter shines a light on the Christian community to show what systems are at work. And we can't avoid this question that James keeps presenting again and again that I sort of sum up with this phrase. James is asking us, which side are we on? Are we on the side of the world, or are we on the side of Christ? In 2017, I met a couple of preachers that would sort of change my trajectory in life. The Reverend William Barber and the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, they came to Birmingham to do a nonviolence training. And then later on, a few months later in 2018, they announced that they were doing a leading a reconsecration of the poor people's campaign which had been started by Dr Martin Luther King Jr in 1968. King did not live long enough to see his work come to fruition, to see thousands of poor and low-wealth people move on to the National Mall to live for months in something that came to be called Resurrection City. And they spent that summer in '68 going to Congress and going to leaders and advocating for poor and low-wealth people to improve working conditions and the social safety net. Fifty years later... Barber and Liz Theo Harris decided to pick up the banner that had begun in 1968. They called it the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. They set out the audacious goal of, they were going to address the interlocking injustices of poverty, racism, militarism and violence, ecological devastation, and the distorted moral narrative that's in our country. They did this through rallies. Through civil disobedience, petitions, education, organizing, marches. I've spent three or four years with some of the best people I know on the courts, of, on the steps of, of courthouses and outside of the state legislature in Washington, D.C. And every gathering that we have is deeply rooted in the tradition of nonviolence. And at each meeting, at each demonstration, at each sort of rally and speaking event, It's poor and low wealth people, or people directly impacted by the injustices of environmental devastation or violence that are empowered and lifted up to speak. And around them is a support system of faith leaders, organizers, community members, all those people in the middle that aren't necessarily as impacted as the poor people, but that are just as affected by the system that seeks to abuse them as the people that are directly impacted These folks come there, oftentimes in the heat of Alabama summers is when we did most of our work, committed to a vision of the world where those most in need of help and protection are actually in fact helped and protected and that the system that created the inequality and poverty that was so hurting them could be and would be dismantled. With this new Poor People's Campaign, it does build on Dr. King's vision. It also is an answer to James's question. Which side are you on? Are you on the side of the world that chooses wealth over the poor? Or are you on the side of Christ that chooses the weak to shame the strong? The good news of Jesus Christ that James affirms from the very beginning is that God saves us. And that it's by the grace and power of that salvation that we are able to choose God's systems of love and mercy instead of worldly systems of power and exploitation. What James knows is the way God works is to find the outcast and then to reach out and to draw them into deeper relationship with God, knowing that in the process, a whole bunch more people are drawn to Christ. When we reject the judgment of the world that chooses those at the top to give honor and instead choose the mercy of God by honoring those whom God honors, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the weak, we are choosing the very mystery of God which simply comes down to this, that when you lift from the bottom, we all rise up. Amen.